Hello everyone, uh, my name's Emma. Uh, let's read together. So, Romans 15, starting at verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to the rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, G'day, everyone. It's good to see you uh, this afternoon. Uh, Please keep that passage open uh, so you've got it in front of you. You'll notice on the back that uh, Romans 14 is printed. That's what we looked at last week. It's not a misprint, uh, but because really what we're looking at uh, from chapter 14 right through to halfway through chapter 15 uh, is really the Apostle, he's he's, uh, addressing one big issue. So it'd be handy to have that there because I'll refer to that a little bit. As I said, uh, right through uh, what we heard last week and uh, through to today's passage, Paul is dealing with one uh, big issue. He begins uh, in chapter 14 uh, with this command, except uh, one, uh, the one whose faith is weak, and ends uh, with a similar command in verse 7 of chapter 15, except one another, before he then closes with a prayer, uh, as we heard. And one of the great theological truths that kind of underlie this whole argument here is uh, God's big plan for the world, his great uh, gospel global plan. You see, God's purposes are much bigger than you or me. They're cosmic, they're, they're global. His plan is for a redeemed humanity and a redeemed creation. And that plan was accomplished and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. One global family liberated by the blood of Christ, born of God's mercy and grace and living under his lordship. Have a look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In verse 12, the root of Jesse will spring up, that's that's Jesus the Messiah, who uh, will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. And God's uh, great uh, global gospel plan that's promised here in the quotes from the Psalms, the law and the prophets, 
uh, and fulfilled in Christ, it has implications for life in the local church. Verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Why? Well, verse 6. So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see the implications that God's big plan has for life here in the local church? It's unity, isn't it? God's great global gospel plan means each church community should be a united community glorifying God together. One of the most thrilling and attractive implications, I think, of the cross is the formation Uh, the establishment of these kinds of communities. Uh, God has signed all of us for community. It's a creation gift. And one of the most tragic uh, and and destructive consequences of sin is when our communities break down. It happened in the garden when the man and the woman turned away from each other and they turned away from God. And our human communities ever since have been fraught. And one of our, the great challenges to unity in any community, really, in our fraught and sinful state is how we deal with differences and disagreement. It's a challenge for all communities. It's a challenge for God's communities. And it's a challenge for us here as well. You see, in the Gospel, we find a, re- a vision for real community. It's a community based on God's mercy and his grace. And in this community of grace, we don't deny differences or or disagreements. Instead, we acknowledge them and we handle them in a way that promotes gospel, authentic unity. It doesn't always play out like that, does it? I don't know if you've been in a church where there's been a disagreement. Uh, One alternative to this kind of grace community is surface community. That's when we just pretend about our differences, right? We avoid them. We, we try not to talk about them. And when they turn into kind of conflicts, we ignore them. And instead of dealing with disagreement, we kind of nurse resentment, sometimes for years, and withdraw from each other, all of, the course, all of course in the name of avoiding division and disunity. That's one alternative. Another alternative, legalistic community. In that community, we have like a set of rules Uh, and they often go beyond the gospel and you need to follow them if you're going to be accepted. It squeezes people into the same values and behaviour, the same theological positions, the same political views. Our legalistic communities, they demand conformity and if you don't conform, well, you're not accepted. And neither of these surface community or legalistic community is authentic community. They don't promote gospel unity and community. Grace is the only way. Well, this uh, authentic gospel unity and community that was under severe pressure in Rome. And this issue concerned the Apostle Paul greatly, so much so that he spends a chapter and a half addressing it. Because deep uh, in the heart, as we've seen, Uh, for God's purposes for the world is the restoration of authentic community in the church. 
And so for Paul, bringing healing and unity to the church in Rome, it's not, it's not a side hustle. It's not the icing on the cake. It's the cake. It's a fundamental implication of the gospel itself. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Every effort. Every effort. And this is the kind of the pressing issue here in Romans 14 and 15. We began looking at it last week, the situation in the Roman church. It's tense, right? It's tense. Uh, Gentile Christians, uh, the church is made up of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, well, they've rightly understood the gospel. They know that they're free to eat meat even when it's been prepared using pagan rituals. They know they're not bound by the uh, old covenant as law anymore. They know that. They've grasped the freedom that they have in the gospel and that's a good thing, that's a, that's a right thing. That's not the problem. The problem is they're insisting that their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, they do the same. They're insisting that they ditch the Sabbath. They're insisting that they eat meat, even though their consciences haven't caught up yet. Even though that for them eating meat would be a sin, even though for them it would cause them to stumble, as Paul says, and to fall. Can you kind of see what the Gentile Christians have done? They've used their freedom to make another legalistic community. They're saying, we have freedom in Christ, but you have to think like me. You have to act like me. It's just a new form of legalism. Well, Paul sees what's happening here and he's, he's upset. He's outraged. For the sake of food and drink, you're violating the consequences of your brothers and sisters. You're causing them to stumble and fall, these ones for whom Christ died? Remember what he calls these matters in chapter 14. Not central, not, de- not decisive, disputable. And you're destroying the work of God for these? Are you serious? Chapter 15 is really kind of the end point of his argument. Here he says, this is how you should act. This is what unity in grace-filled community looks like. This is who you're meant to be. Verse 1, uh, Paul says, in grace-filled community, the strong, they should bear with the weak. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. Sometimes he says there are more important things than being right. It's hard to believe, I know. Hard to believe. We like being right. Instead, uh, Indeed, sometimes in the name of being right, we behave like it's okay to do damage to others. But as it turns out, well, sometimes being right isn't that important. Now, Paul is clear on who is right. He's not pretending they're not right. 
He identifies with the strong. He's 100% on board with the theology of the strong. It's just that on some issues, community is more important than being correct and asserting your correctness over others. Some issues are not worth causing division and damage over. Now, it's important not to mishear this. It's important to really hear what he is saying and what he's not saying. On the one hand, when what is at stake is the gospel or behaviour that necessarily flows from the gospel, right theology and conduct is worth insisting on even if it causes division and conflict. Here's an example. Uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says in 1, uh, 8 to 9, if anybody preaches a different gospel, let them uh, be under God's curse, literally be eternally condemned, cut off, let them go to hell. He's pretty serious when the gospel is concerned. He's ferocious in defending the gospel. Another example from 1 Corinthians, when someone's sin is grievous and they are thoroughly and, and, and proudly unrepentant, Paul's clear, the sexually immoral, uh, the slanderers, the greedy, he says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in chapter 5 he says, don't associate with these people in the hope, of course, that they will come to repentance. Paul's not a relativist. He won't tolerate everything and anything in God's church. On the other hand, it's just not the case that in every disagreement and difference that the gospel and the behaviour that flows from the gospel is at stake. And this issue here, it's not worth breaking community over. We must be very careful, very careful about what issues we break unity and threaten community over. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Every effort. There will be issues that fall into that category where we need to take serious action. But this issue in Rome, it's not one of them. It's not about the gospel. It's not about uh, necessary behaviour or ethics. It's about religious practices and ritual and they're disputable. And so that means those who are strong, those who've rightly understood their freedom in Christ, they should bear with the failings of the weak. And the image here is of carrying a load. So Paul is saying to the strong, for the sake of unity, use your strength to carry, to help, to serve the weak. He's not saying pretend you're wrong. He's not saying pretend you haven't understood the freedom of the gospel. He says, no, no, he's saying use your strength. Use your knowledge in the service of those whose consciences aren't as developed or as trained as yours. Use it for their good, he says in verse 2, to build them up. What does that mean? Well, it means not passing judgment on their weaker brothers and sisters. 
It means not insisting that they eat meat they don't want to eat. It means not insisting that they ditch their Sabbath. Indeed, it means not doing anything that will cause them to stumble or fall, he says at the end of chapter 14. Sometimes what we say to strong people is, pretend you're not strong. Wealthy people, pretend you're not wealthy. Influential people, don't, don't be influential. Smart people, don't be smart. We try and take them down. Paul's not saying that here. He's not saying hide or deny your strength. He's saying use it. Not in a prideful or self-serving way, but use your strength in the service of others. In this case, their knowledge. From Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's the same message. Be humble. Use your strength to serve. Well, here Paul is very clear on who is strong and who is weak. But that won't always be easy to work out in our situations. We don't have an apostle of Christ to tell us. And actually, when I'm in disagreements about the Christian life, I usually think I'm the strong one, right? When we're in an argument, we think we're right. But the point of this passage isn't to work out who is strong or or who is weak in our different situations. The point is, serve. How might I use my knowledge, my strength to serve and please others? How do I love and build up the other person? So often that's not the way that we come to disagreements. But that's what we're called to do. Uh, To come to them for the other person's good. Not to win, to judge or to crush the other person, but to love them. If you're further along in your faith, that's a strength. If you have maturity, if you have wisdom, that's a strength. Use it to serve those who you think maybe are caught up on some things that are a bit peripheral. Use it to serve those who might be struggling in sin. Not to crush, but to serve. Real strength, real maturity is not meant to puff up. It's not meant to be used to belittle or to patronise people. Real strength is to be held in humility and service. Because in a grace-filled community, the strong bear with and they carry the weak. And verse 7, in grace-filled community, we all accept one another. Uh, This is the Apostle's last command in this whole section and it's really the climax of his argument. Brothers and sisters in Rome, whoever you are, whether you're a Jew or a, or a Gentile, whatever your backgrounds or beliefs, whatever your practices are, whatever it is you eat or don't eat, accept one another. Not just smiling thinly or exchanging pleasantries. Genuinely accept and welcome. Allow the other person in, into your presence into your life, into your care, into your concern, into your love. Accept and welcome one another. 
be a community of grace that makes visible what God has done in Christ. Be a spirit-filled community that fights for the unity and the love for which Jesus shed his precious blood. Don't you want to be that community? We can be that community here at 4pm. And if we are to be that community, that means not having any criteria uh, beyond the gospel for how we welcome and include and build up each other. They're not, uh, there's not extra boxes to tick or extra hurdles to jump over to be accepted. It, it doesn't just welcome uh, people from certain backgrounds or, or, or uh, occupations or, or statuses or people with certain kinds of social values. It doesn't form kind of these impenetrable relational cliques. That's not grace-based community. Now, a community of grace, we recognise all the differences between us, all the ways I might be right and, and you might be right, you might be strong, I might be strong. And the whole point is we use our differences for each other. Not to puff ourselves up or to run over others, but for the good purpose of building others up. We're all called to be part of God's construction project in each other and in our life together. That's grace-based community. Notice also how the Apostle Paul, how he kind of grounds these instructions. We use our strengths not to please ourselves but to please and build up others. Why verse 3? Because Christ did not please himself. We ought to accept one another. Why verse 7? Because Christ, the one who became a servant, has accepted you. That's why. He accepted you in your weakness, accepted you at your worst. Jesus is our servant and our Lord And as a humble servant, he's our great example. Verse 5, have the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Christ, he was in very nature God. Yet he took the nature of a servant. Imitate him. Imitate the one who humbled himself, who became obedient, uh, obedient to even death on a cross. Imitate him. In the garden of Gethsemane, sweat falling like drops of blood to the ground, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, Father, but yours be done. His aim wasn't to please himself. His aim was to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Have that same attitude. By the Holy Spirit, we're all being conformed to the image of Christ, conformed into his servants, conformed to carry each other as he has carried us. And at the cross, that's exactly what he did. He carried us. In his uh, strength, he bore our weakness. 
by his forsakenness, we were accepted by God. And because of his shed blood, we can be those who carry each other, who build each other up, who accept each other as we strive together for gospel unity. And so now we return to the beginning. God's great global gospel plan. At the heart of God's plan is the restoration of real community. And so Paul's earnest desire, his gospel passion, is that believers in Rome live in unity with one another. But that unity isn't the end game. It's not an end in itself. Have a look at verse 6. It's so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal of unity. Our unity kind of anticipates that great day in Revelation 7, right, where every uh, tongue, tribe and nation, all peoples are gathered around the throne praising God in glory. There and now our unity has a purpose, a goal, the glory of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that glory is diminished when God's people sing out of tune. When there are discordant notes, when there are conflicts and clashes, when there is division and disunity. The picture here is of God's people as a choir. It's a beautiful picture, it's a powerful picture, right? Because when you're in a choir, differences aren't something that you fight over or judge each other over. It's not something that we even just tolerate. It's something that's needed, right? You need difference. You celebrate difference because you need the the basses, the tenors, the altos, the sopranos. You need all the different voices. Not doing their own thing, going their own way but singing the same song in in harmony, in unison. Using their strength to serve, accepting, celebrating and and completing each other. And it's then in all their differences, it's then that the choir makes a beautiful sound. Well, how about us? What will be the challenge to unity here? It probably won't be food and drink, maybe the type of coffee we buy, uh, or, or Sabbath days. What might they be? Different ideas on the role of gender in ministry. Uh, different ideas on how we should act on issues of social justice. Different ideas on how we, we should respond to the conflicts in the wider Anglican church and the related theological issues. And the fault lines of our culture around us, you know, wealth, status, power, politics, they're going to find their way in, into the church. That just happens in every church, right? A girl in my daughter's class said they could never be friends, maybe never even speak to a white liberal voting, middle-aged Christian male. It's a, it's a school in the inner north, so that kind of gives you some context. 
But do you reckon there could be a Christian version of that in the church? Whatever issues we face, and some will clearly be disputable, right? We'll be able to kind of agree. Others, well, they'll be clearly central to the gospel. Others, well, they're going to be much harder to figure out. The good news is I'm not proposing that we stop and we try and work them all out today. But as we approach each issue, we have a wonderful opportunity. We have a wonderful opportunity to come together as one united, grace-filled community. We have the wonderful opportunity uh, to do that across all our differences, whether they're significant or not. We have the wonderful opportunity to see that even our significant differences are relativised by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the wonderful opportunity to use our differences, our strengths, to serve, to build, to accept one another as Christ has accepted us and so that with one voice we may glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul has two prayers, really, to pray for that. And we're going to pray them together. So I want you to join me with the two prayers on the screen. Together, Father God, give us endurance and encouragement. Give us the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and voice we may glorify you. God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.